Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Here feeling Peter Cottontail's pretty white. <laughs> and he's like, I'm hippity hoppitin'. <laughs> you think he's, he's hip hop the way the grandma who does the rap? Yes. Yeah. In uh, in The Wedding Singer? Yeah. Abso-fucking-lutely. <laughs> I said a hip hop. A hippity, the hippity, the hip hip hop, and I don't stop the rock until the bang bang boogie. <laughs> Though that woman is adorable. She, she's pretty great. Damn That's... adorable. So happy uh, hippity hoppity day to everyone. Actually, it's like two days after the hippity hop day. Yeah. So that means all the candy is on sale. So I hope you've enjoyed all the Cadbury eggs and peeps and... All of that stuff. All those goodies. Uh, and uh, welcome to Campfire Classics. We read stories. Usually, yeah. We talk a lot, too. There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of chit chat, mostly because typically I say hello, welcome to the program, and then Heather says something strange, and then <laughs> I get very concerned by some little detail of what Heather has just said. Um, like, you know, it always bothers me that the the Easter celebration, much like Christmas, the the sort of secular Easter celebration of rabbits. That lay eggs for some no, reason. No chicks. Chicks. Yeah, but it's the Easter Bunny I who know, comes along brings, and leaves. He brings the chicken eggs. eggs. I don't know why. So why why is the Easter Bunny leaving eggs? Why Bunnies is the Easter Bunny stealing eggs. eggs from these chickens? That's well, and up. that's that's also weird. Like if he's just taking eggs from chickens, that's bizarre too. But my thought was always. Bunnies don't lay eggs, and you just called the Easter bunny he, which has That's, usually oh, yeah. been my assumption as well. So why is this male rabbit laying eggs? Maybe the ma- maybe the Easter bunny does not have a super strong gender identity and wants to transition, but because he is he or they are part of a uh, religious holiday, they don't feel comfortable going through their transition. But is the I, Easter Bunny <laughs> slash Peter Cottontail also trans-speciesist? Because I have no it idea. seems... <laughs> the Easter Bunny to, to also be, wants to be a chicken, yeah, so... Or like a bird of some sort. Very strange. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, it's a weird holiday. Uh, we're going up to my grandma's tomorrow because vaccinations have occurred and uh and so it's they're safe. gonna go to church in the morning and we're gonna arrive at noon and drink bloody mary's and eat food yeah <laughs> so that's my kind of holiday making making some cheesecake today oh yeah grandma called she's like you're in charge of the dessert and i turned to ken and if you're a patron of ours you know this because you have the recipe i said ken you're making the cheesecakes i will help <laughs> yeah are those is is that recipe something that uh you need to send out or does it auto automatically send when people become patrons i I don't actually run the patreon page well we have posted it as a patreon release so they can access it i usually also send it separately great cool 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 to say like welcome speaking of patrons we uh we had that drive going we did and uh we were one shy 
but we're going to do the calendar anyway. Oh, are we? Oh, yes. I this, told you. This was not a discussion. That's <laughs> this very was true. an executive decision, it's, apparently. It's because people were super supportive, and we did get four new patrons, um, and two of those uh, we can mention today because we mentioned two of them last week. So we have uh, actually two other podcasts that have given us love. Oh, great. Um, one of them being... From the ladies of Wine, Dine, and Storytime, Dana, uh, Nydia, and Cindy. Thank you, ladies. Yes. Always a pleasure. Um, they were on our show, of course, playing True Crimes and a Lie a few months ago. Yeah. And uh, also an amazing, supportive uh, podcast called I Had to Say It. And the host is Aaron. And he's seriously, I, I know I talk about the, like the Twitter family and like the how supportive podcasts are. Um, but Aaron and like, and uh, Nydia and um, uh, Superiority Complex, who supported us last week, they've been like posting, being like, go support these people. The podcast is freaking hilarious, and we want to see Ken without his shirt on. <laughs> I do feel a little bit like I miss out on some of the family joy of being part of a podcast because... Twitter frightens me. Yeah, I know. I do show I do show Ken the like really lovely comments. Yeah, and I get stuff I get and... to see most of it. I just I'm I'm I am a uh, I am a loving observer rather than an active participant. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's a wild wild world out there on Twitter. Let me tell you, it was something I didn't. Un- oh, we also got more than a thousand. We have now more than over a thousand followers on Twitter Ooh, as of this week. That's cool. So that's really exciting. Hey, listener, are you one of our followers on Twitter? If you're not, you should be. Yep. Just search Campfire Classics Podcast or it's at Campfire Classy One. And it's that's classy with an I. Yeah. Campfire Classy, C-L-A-S-S-I. Yep. And then the digit one. One. And that's our at, if you will, to at us. <laughs> but I'm on there a lot because I'm promoting our podcast and other podcasts. Um, so uh, send us a message. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of promoting other podcasts, um, I... I hearing you. Oh, my God. Siri just randomly, like, became alive on my Apple Siri, Watch. Siri, nobody asks your opinion. No, Siri, no. Good God. God. Bad. That scared the shit out of me. Artificial intelligence. I was like, why is there a voice coming out of my butt? (laughs) Why are you wearing your watch on your butt? (laughs) I'm hugging my knees, and so my watch is near my butt, and that's, I was like, I literally went like, what? And I looked between my legs. (laughs) Um... And it said, I don't understand what you're saying. And I was like, why would my butt want to know? (laughs) Why is your butt always listening in on our private conversations that are not private because we're recording them for the rest of the world? (laughs) That just seems rude. That is rude. Um, But. (laughs) Good job. Thank you. As I was saying, um, Speaking of promoting other podcasts, uh, the the ladies of Wine, Dine, and Storytime yes. did reach out, uh, uh, oh, I th- a week and a half ago or something. Mm-hmm. The episode that they have coming out uh, tomorrow as of the release date of our episode, one of the stories they will be telling is uh, one of the stories that that I did some research on for our vampire episode of True Crimes and a Lie. You heard that right. There is a vampire episode of True Crimes and a Lie. So yes, one of the stories they're covering is the story of uh, Fritz Harmon, mm-hmm. uh, who was, I 
I believe a German or Belgian or something uh, serial killer, something, yeah. uh, something in, in that it, part of, yeah. of Europe, uh, serial killer who I covered briefly in True Crimes and a Lie Volume 5, which aired as part of the episode Eight Miles in My Rear. <laughs> the whole episode was um, vampire themed yeah. because all three of the True Crimes and a Lie were vampire stories. And then Eight Miles in My Rear was the vampire made which is so good which is great so go check out episode 29 if you haven't already listened to it eight miles in my rear or the (laughs) true crimes and a lie volume five standalone um to get a a quick sense of what that story is and then um go listen to that because they'll do a nice deep dive into it and i'm excited to see what cindy cooks this week for like she's I hope she does like blood meat pudding. pies or blood pudding, meat pies, something like that. Maybe the other person they're covering is the demon barber of Fleet Street. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so go support our girls. They're amazing. Uh, and uh, go check out episode 29 if you want to, if you like vampires. We've done a couple vampire stories. Yeah, I, they're fun. It's crazy. They're crazy. But do we have any official promos that we're running this week? Um, We do, actually. What so, do we got? Speaking of Aaron, (laughs) we're going to do I Had to Say It. Oh, great. So check it out. So 2021 is upon us. And instead of flying cars and monkey robot butlers, we have a pandemic. We have media and making every little annoying twit of a child think they're going to be the next famous celebrity because they did some stupid trend they've seen somebody else doing nine million times. We have people that are self-entitled and stupid and given a voice through social media constantly whining about how everybody else is the problem and how everyone else needs fixings. We have celebrities lecturing us about how we have to give more so we can elevate everyone to a better life from the security of their seven-bedroom, multi-million-dollar estates. We have politicians lying to us that they're going to fix the situations we're in that they created in the first place. And then we've got me, having the conversations that a lot of us are thinking but nobody's talking about. Because these things have to be said. I had to say at the podcast. Available wherever you get your podcast fix or at www.ihadtosayitpodcast.com. Why don't you come listen to what I've got to say. So for as supportive as he may be on Twitter, <laughs> he clearly has some strong, not-so-supportive opinions about, well, certain people and things like me (laughs) i think aaron and i would get along very well in person (laughs) he has a whole podcast dedicated to being like fuck this and i just do it in the first like 20 minutes of our podcast and then i and then i get down to business and then sometimes (laughs) interject it into stories and get us wildly off track what i never do that speaking of stories yeah we should um like tell some stories. Do that thing that we're Let's actually supposed to do. Do that thing that you're here for. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you came to listen to a story, uh, the time has come. The time has come. Well, not really, because we're gonna do true facts first. So, but this is where you learn stuff. Here, true this, facts. This, fun I, I don't facts. Know. I was just gonna let it slide. I mean, they are true. I guess so. They're I they're so. true fun facts. This this is the edu part of your edutainment podcast. <laughs> So All what right. do we got? So we have a new author this week, and it is an author that we have mentioned before, but we have never read I'm going. Before. I'm trying to go through the Rolodex now and see <laughs> what we've... It's someone who has come up as a uh, a colleague of another writer that we've brought, brought up. Oh, I, yeah. A couple I people, actually. I, I don't think I'm going to hit 
You won't. Hemingway? No. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to get it. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, were, you, were, you were close-ish. It's Nathaniel Hawthorne. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you were right. H. You had the H I right. had the H right. You had Hemingway, Hawthorne, you know. So uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne was born July 4th, uh, 1804. So he was a 4th of July baby. He's an America baby. America baby. And he's an American novelist. Uh, He is best known for his short stories and two widely read novels, The Scarlet Letter. You might have heard of it. uh, And The House of Seven Gables. Okay. So uh, he... So he's, he's world famous for writing books that everyone found ways not to read in elementary school. Elementary school. Middle I school? hope they didn't have you read the Scarlet Letter in elementary school. Fuck. Well, I, I mean, I was thinking like fifth, sixth grade. Uh, I think like eighth, I don't know. ninth. I never read it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I oh, have no okay. idea. Uh, I would be concerned if my teacher was like, "Here, Heather," because I loved reading, mm-hmm. and like in fourth grade, I was reading books that were much above me, and like, but <laughs> Scarlet Letter deals with like. Sex and infidelity and like labeling women. Yeah, I know that, but for some reason <laughs> in my head, in terms of reading level, like for it's some not reason, Sesame Street. No, it's no, no, not no, like I know. this letter is red. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'll bet Sesame Street did that episode. I hope um, so. So uh, if you read this in fourth grade, wow. If you didn't, then uh, you can go read it now. Uh, <laughs> the Scarlet Letter. Woohoo! So you may remember we mentioned him in the Herman Melville uh, episode, which was just a couple weeks ago, because Herman Melville dedicated Moby Dick to Nathaniel Hawthorne. That's right. And he was also friends with Edgar Allan Poe, because, uh, you know, good people. Uh, it belongs Would to the we same... Would Poe good people? I don't know. I don't think he ever did anything bad. He just wrote about people that did some crazy shit. <laughs> Uh, and this is because they were all part of the genre called dark romanticism. Uh, so he was born in 1804 in Salem, Massachusetts. Okay. And he was the only son of Nathaniel and Elizabeth Hawthorne. Uh, his father was a sea captain and died when he was only four years old of yellow fever, which left the family without good financial support and whatnot. His mother ended up getting remarried and he ended up getting some siblings. Uh, but this is this is one of the weird this is the weird thing. Cause I swear to God, we've said this fact about another author, but I've saw it on multiple sites. Okay. So I used like Britannica, Wikipedia, literature.com, like all these things. A leg injury at their early age left Hawthorne immobile for several months he was playing stick and ball which i'm guessing is baseball (laughs) or at least a predecessor predecessor of baseball because this was long before that but uh and he was like incapacitated for months in bed now the doctor could find nothing physically wrong with him like it wasn't like he broke his leg he just like he hurt himself and then stayed in bed for like Months at a time, there was another person. This is similar to Bram Stoker. That's it. Who was like super sick until seven years old or something like like that. And then he just got out of bed and was fine. Okay, so I don't know what's (laughs) going on in the water. I mean, it wasn't very good water, probably. It it wasn't very good water. No. So, um, but this is where. Also, very different parts of the world. Right, it's true. Um, But this is where he developed his uh, appetite for reading. 
um, and started kind of falling in love with literature and writing. Mm. So now here's a fun fact. His great, great grandfather was John Hawthorne, the only judge from the Salem witch trials who never repented for his involvement. Oh, shit. So Hawthorne in college added the W to his surname um, in an effort to disassociate himself from <laughs> his great great grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, nah, fuck that dude. Yeah. I'm disowning great great grandpa. Disowning my like wo- woman killing grandfather. <laughs> yeah. Good call. Good All call, right. Nathaniel. All right. Respect. Yep. Uh, so he was educated at a small university called Bowden College. Um, and while he was there, he missed his mother and his two sisters by his stepfather uh, and her so much that on upon graduation, he returned home for 12 years and just kind of holed up and started writing. Um, and he kind of found his voice and started self-publishing all his stories. Uh, he then fell in love with a woman named Sophia Peabody. And she was an illustrator and a transcendentalist. Oh. Do you, do you know this? Do you know what this is about? All Please right. So, share. this is a fun story. So, he joined because he was in love with this girl. He joined the transcendentalist utopian community at Brook Farm in 1841, oh, not Lord. because he agreed with the experiment, but because he wanted to save money and marry Sophia. <laughs> so, the transcendentalists believe in. Quote, inherent goodness of both people and nature. Uh, uh, one of the sites I found that think think 17th century, wait, 18th century. What fucking century are we in? 1800s? Yeah. 19th, 19th century. <laughs> Just keep going. You'll get there eventually. <laughs> I was like, which way do we go again? Uh, one site I found said, it think, 19th century hippies. Yeah, they're wizard hippies. They're Yeah, they're like fucking hippies, like, before the 60s. Like, it's, it's intellectual hippies of the early 19th century is what they said. Um, Hawthorne was a founding member of this place, even though he wasn't though really he buying it. He didn't buy it. He was just like, ah, His first job, this girl's hot. Yeah. So he had to put down like a thousand dollar deposit because that's like it, you're it's a it's a commune. Yeah. I mean it's it's like a co-op, um, but then you get paid and you eventually make all that money back and more. Um, his he was in, put in charge of shoveling the hill of manure, referred to as the gold mine. So he literally put down a one thousand dollar <laughs> deposit, which by today's standards would be an enormous oh, yeah. amount of money. And this is he'd made all this by writing stories. For the privilege of shoveling a giant shit pile. Well, he courted his love. <laughs> While he courted his love, and I'm sure being covered in shit every day helped. Well, it did because they got married <laughs> on July 9th, 1842. Um, at a ceremony at her family home, the Peabody Parlor in West Street in Boston. So it worked. All right. He's a hard worker and she fell in love. So great. Uh, he was not a believer, clearly. And so he drifted further and further away from this transcendental principles. He later in his writing produced um, a lot of works that showed his disdain for the movement, actually. <laughs> Um, his notable fictionalized experiment uh, uh, experiences at Brook Farm 
are part of his satirical novel, The Blythedale Romance. <laughs> yeah, these people are fucking bonkers, but uh, hey, I got a wife out of the deal. So. She's a little cuckoo, but we just don't talk about politics. <laughs> <laughs> so when they got married, he convinced her to get the hell out of the commune and they moved to Concord, Massachusetts. Uh, his neighbor was Ralph Waldo Emerson. And uh, he invited him into the social circle, but Hawthorne was very shy and didn't, like, communicate a lot, but he was part of it. So during this time, he uh, was working on The Scarlet Letter, and that became one of the first mass-produced novels in America. It Hmm. was an instant bestseller, selling over 2,500 copies in the first two weeks. And at that time, that was unheard of, like... Like, boom. So he was sort of the anti-Melville. Yes. I Like, honestly, and here uh, that's coming up, actually. So the success of The Scarlet Letter, he made a lot of money. Uh, he moved his family to a farmhouse near Lenox, Massachusetts. And he became friends with Herman Melville. Uh, they met at a picnic hosted by a mutual friend. So they were picnic pals. <laughs> um, Melville had just read Hawthorne's short story collection, and was just, like, obsessed. He loved him so much. And uh, he read these stories and spoke about the dark side of Hawthorne of shrouded in blackness ten times black. Which <laughs> <laughs> he loved. So he was he was into his dark, his dark brooding side. And then, of course, we know he dedicated Moby Dick to Hawthorne. And, quote, in token of my admiration for his genius, this book hmm. is inscribed to Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh I could go on like this is another one of those authors that has so much to talk about. But one thing I did want to say is that his heroine, Hester Prine, in The Scarlet Letter and all of the women in his novels and short stories were well ahead of their time. Um, A lot of feminist scholars and uh, literary scholars have like dissected these books and like he always tended to uh, make his female characters more well-rounded than the men, which huh. was not common yeah, at the not time. The thing. Um, but he wrote these very complex, very flawed yet like fascinating women. Um, they were not prim proper women. They were interesting. Huh. <laughs> they were cool. human beings. So uh, that's one thing that I am excited. I kind of want to, I haven't read the Scarlet Letter either, so I kind of want to watch it. I don't want to watch the Demi Moore one because apparently that one's not good. Well, apparently she's in a bathtub speaking with the worst British accent you've ever heard. Yeah, fine. So you read it and then you get to cast whoever you want in the part. Me. Um, so <laughs> sure. So uh, he ended up passing away in his sleep in 1864 uh, while on a tour of the White Mountains in Plymouth, New Hampshire. So. Um, And his wife was really, like, she was so distraught she couldn't even plan the funeral. But, again, we'll go into more. We'll probably read him again since, apparently, he was super famous for short stories. Great. Today, you will be reading, because in honor of Easter, this title just made me go, huh, uh, The Ministers, so The Minister, because, you know, church, maybe not this part, Black Veil, The Minister's Black Veil. (laughs) Oh, Okay. I, I saw the ministers and, you know. You went minister and said, great, I'm on board. Yep, great. Cool. Uh, so this is a short story written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It was first published in 1836 in The Token and The Atlantic Souvenir. So. All right. 
Let's do it. Let's start this fire. Woohoo! The Minister's Black Veil, a parable by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Waka waka. <laughs> I don't think Fozzie has anything to do with it. Fozzie should have things to do with everything. I'm, I'm trying to find Fozzie's voice. Waka waka. Waka waka. Waka waka. The sexton no, stood in the porch of Milford Meeting House. I, I take back everything I said. <laughs> The sexton stood in the porch of Milford Meeting House, pulling lustily at the bell rope. Uh, how? How do we already have our first, like, innuendo sex joke? <laughs> I love to pull lustfully at the bell rope. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> he already had some things in mind for the Scarlet Letter. Yeah, he did. <laughs> the people of the village came stooping along the street. Children with bright faces tripped merrily beside their parents or mimicked the graver gait and the conscious dignity of their Sunday clothes. Spruce bachelors looked sidelong at the pretty maidens and fancied that the Sabbath sunshine made them prettier than on weekdays. Oh, it's Sunday. See? Easter. Yeah. <laughs> When the throng had mostly streamed into the porch, the sexton began to toll the bell, keeping his eye on the Reverend Mr. Hooper's door. The first glimpse of the clergyman's figure was the signal for the bell to cease its summons. But what has good Parson Hooper got upon his face? cried the sexton in astonishment. What's a sexton? An employee of the church of some kind. It's pulling on his bell rope? Yeah. <laughs> okay. A church employee whose job is to pull on bell ropes. A person who looks after a church in a churchyard, sometimes acting as bell ringer. There you go. And formally, so back now when we're reading, mm -hmm. as the grave digger as well. Oh. All right. Cool. So it was kind so of sort like of the, general the custodian, custodian, the custodian of, the church. of the church. Yeah. Great. So he's got actually a pretty important job. Yeah. Yeah. Look after things, make sure nobody breaks in, make sure the marble statues don't come to life and start murdering the townspeople, that sort of thing. That did happen in that one's man-sized man in, in marble. It's amazing that your voice just immediately recalls that echo that it had yeah, in that episode. It, yep. That was nice. All within hearing immediately turned about and beheld the semblance of Mr. Hooper pacing slowly his meditative way toward the meeting house. With one accord, they started, expressing more wonder than if some strange minister were coming to dust the cushions of Mr. Hooper's pulpit. "'Are you sure it is our parson?' inquired Goodman Gray of the sexton. "'Of a certainty it is good Mr. Hooper,' replied the sexton. "'He was to have exchanged pulpits with Parson Shuddy of Westbury, "'but Parson Shuddy sent to excuse himself yesterday being to preach a funeral sermon.' "'The cause of so much amazement may appear sufficiently slight. "'Mr. Hooper, a gentlemanly parson of about thirty, though still a bachelor,' was dressed with due clerical neatness, as if a careful wife had starched his band and brushed the weekly dust from his Sunday garbs. Hot minister coming to town. Yeah. There was but one thing remarkable in his appearance. Yeah, already he is. It's in my head. It is, um... Stephen McGregor in, uh... 
angels and demons. Oh, so I was going to go with priest. Heath Ledger in um, The Sin Eater or something like that. Oh, I didn't ever see that. No, The Sin Eater was a different one. The Order. I never saw that. Also known as The Sin Eater. Oh, okay. I was right. Oh, you were right. I was right and wrong. I've never seen it, but yeah, I'll take Heath Ledger or Ewan McGregor in a clergy outfit. Ooh, that says a lot about my childhood. I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> he can take your confession. He can take my confession. <laughs> there was but one thing remarkable in his appearance. Swathed about his forehead and hanging down over his face, so low as to be shaken by his breath, Mr. Hooper had on a black veil. On a nearer view, it seemed to consist of two folds of crepe, which entirely concealed his features except the mouth and chin, but probably did not intercept his sight further than to give a darkened aspect to all living and inanimate things. With this gloomy shade before him, good Mr. Hooper walked onward at a slow and quiet pace, stooping somewhat, and looking on the ground, as is customary with abstracted men, yet nodding kindly to those of his parishioners who still waited on the meeting-house steps. But so wonderstruck were they that his greeting hardly met with a return. I can't really feel as if good Mr. Hooper's face was behind that piece of crepe. Said Why would the he hide his beautiful face? <laughs> I don't like it, muttered an old woman as she hobbled into the <laughs> meeting house. He has changed himself into something awful only by hiding his face. Our parson has gone mad, cried Goodman Gray, <laughs> following him across the threshold. A rumor of some unaccountable phenomenon had preceded Mr. Hooper into the meeting house and set all the congregation astir. Few could refrain from twisting their heads toward the door. Many stood upright and turned directly about, while several little boys clambered upon the seats and came down again with a terrible racket. There was a general bustle. A rustling of the women's gowns and shuffling of the men's feet, greatly at variance with the hushed repose which should attend the entrance of the minister. But Mr. Hooper appeared not to notice the perturbation of his people. He entered with an almost noiseless step, bent his head mildly to the pews on each side, and bowed as he passed his oldest parishioner, a white-haired great-grandsire, who occupied an armchair at the center of the aisle. This reminds me of, uh, there's an episode of Sex in the City <laughs> where Samantha gets a chemical peel, like she's at her like dermatologist and it's like, would you like a chemical peel? It takes like 10 years off your face. She goes, yes, I'll do it. Little does she know it takes like three days for your skin to heal after. And she has to go to like a book, like a book party that night for Carrie, her best friend. And her face looks like fucking raw meat. <laughs> and so she wears this like black veiled hat and everyone's staring at her because they're like, what in the fuck is she wearing? And then she finally pulls it up and everyone's like, no, no, put it back on, put it back on. So maybe he got some, some, uh, um, a facelift or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Nathaniel Hawthorne just stole this story from Sex and the City. I'm sure he did. He, he's a time traveler. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. 
We I shall, wasn't there. Let's find out. It was strange to observe how slowly this venerable man became conscious of something singular in the appearance of his pastor. That was referring to the old man who took a long time to realize that there was something weird going on. He seemed not fully to partake of the prevailing wonder till Mr. Hooper had ascended the stairs and showed himself in the pulpit face to face with his congregation except for the black veil. That mysterious emblem was never once withdrawn. It shook with his measured breaths as he gave out the psalm. It threw its obscurity between him and the holy page as he read the scriptures. And while he prayed, the veil lay heavily on his uplifted countenance. Did he seek to hide it from the dread being whom he was addressing? Such was the effect of this simple piece of crepe that more than one woman of delicate nerves was forced to leave the meeting house, yet perhaps <laughs> the pale-faced congregation was almost as fearful a sight to the minister as his black veil to them. This is such a scandal. <laughs> Mr. Hooper had the reputation of a good preacher, but not an energetic one. He strove to win his people heavenward by mild, persuasive influences rather than drive them thither by thunders of the word. The sermon which he now delivered was marked by the same characteristics of style and manner as the general series of his pulpit oratory, but... There was something either in the sentiment of the discourse itself or in the imagination of the auditors which made it greatly the most powerful effort that they had ever heard from their pastor's lips. It was tinged rather more darkly than usual with the gentle gloom of Mr. Hooper's temperament. The subject had reference to secret sin and those sad mysteries which we hide from our nearest and dearest and would fain conceal from our own consciousness even forgetting that the omniscient can detect them a subtle power was breathed into his words each member of the congregation, the most innocent girl, and the man of hardened breast felt as if the preacher had crept upon them behind his awful veil and discovered their hoarded iniquity of deed or thought. Oh, damn! So it's like putting on a mask or when you put on like a costume or something, you like, you kind of come to life, but also... While about while being in that costume, you say this is like a parable for reality. By putting on a mask, he is holding as twere a mirror up to nature. Hey, Hamlet. Yeah, he, <laughs> but no, by by putting on the mask, yeah. he's being like, "This we is the mask I'm putting on, and and look how differently you perceive me." Yeah, we all put on masks so that we will be perceived differently. I'm yeah. just being obvious about mine. <laughs> I just literally put on a fucking mask because. I don't think the people in this town are super smart. Many spread their clasped hands on their bosoms. <laughs> there was nothing terrible in what Mr. Hooper said, at least no violence, and yet with every tremor of his melancholy voice, the hearers 
quaked. An onsought pathos came hand in hand with awe. So sensible were the audience of some unwanted attribute in their minister that they longed for a breath of wind to blow aside the veil, almost believing that a stranger's visage would be discovered, though the form, gesture, and voice were those of Mr. Hooper. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he's a vampire. Maybe he's like Skeletor. (laughs) Or, Or a vampire, yeah. He's put on the mask to protect him from the sunlight. Yes! At the close of the services, the people hurried out with indecorous confusion, eager to communicate their pent-up amazement and conscious of lighter spirits the moment they lost sight of the black veil. Some gathered in little circles, huddled closely together with their mouths all whispering in the center. Pick a little tuck a little, pick a little tuck a little, cheep, 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 tuck a little. I feel like we go to Music Man a lot. We go to Music Man a lot. Also, Music Man has come up multiple times this week. And I almost picked a Balzac story this week because of that. <laughs> Not lying. <laughs> oh, Balzac. Balzac. <laughs> it's funny because it sounds like Balzac. It does. Some gathered in little circles, huddled closely together with their mouths all whispering in the center. Some went homeward alone, wrapped in silent meditation. Some talked loudly and profaned the Sabbath day with ostentatious laughter. The few shook their sagacious heads, intimating that they would penetrate the mystery while one or two... (laughs) affirmed there was no mystery at all, but only that Mr. Hooper's eyes were so weakened by the midnight lamp as to require a shade. I want that to be on a Tinder profile. I'd like to penetrate penetrate your mystery. mystery. (laughs) Fully vaccinated, and I'd like to penetrate your mystery. I am very thorough in my examination and penetration of mysteries. (laughs) Swipe left. (laughs) Is left good or bad? Left is not a good. Okay. (laughs) After a brief (laughs) Sorry, uh, the internet was breaking up there. (laughs) That's yeah, that was really weird. There must have been a bad connection or something. After a brief interval, forth came good Mr. Hooper, also. In the rear of his flock. Came in the rear of his flock? (laughs) About eight miles to be exact. (laughs) Sorry. Listeners, I mean, was I the only one that heard that? (laughs) Okay, continue. No, but you know how this goes. When I'm reading, I just press on and I wait for you to say something childish. Someone has to be the adult or we'd never get through this damn thing. That's for damn sure. After a brief interval, forth came good Mr. Hooper also in the rear of his flock. 
turning his veiled face from one group to another, he paid due reverence to the hoary heads, saluted the middle-aged with kind dignity as their friend and spiritual guide, greeted the young with mingled authority and love, and laid his hands on the little children's heads to bless them. Aww. So he was kissing hands and shaking babies. <laughs> wow. Such was always his custom on the Sabbath day. Strange and bewildered looks repaid him for his courtesy. None, as on former occasions, aspired to the honor of walking by their pastor's side. Old Squire Saunders, doubtless by an accidental lapse of memory, neglected to invite Mr. Hooper to his table, where the good clergyman had been wont to bless the food almost every Sunday since his settlement. He returned, therefore, to the parsonage, and at the moment of closing the door was observed to look back upon the people, all of whom had their eyes fixed upon the minister. A sad smile gleamed faintly from beneath the black veil and flickered about his mouth, glimmering as he disappeared. This is creepy. Yeah. Also, why didn't anyone just ask why he's wearing the fucking thing? Don't stare. Don't, like, make assumptions. Whatever you're assuming is probably way worse than the, the yep. truth. Just be like, hey, bro, what's with the new hat? <laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> Everything okay? You, you good? Do you have a bad zit today? You just didn't want to show it? Like, you having or, a bad day? You are you a vampire? Talk? Or like, yeah. Did somebody die? Like, what's going on? Just ask. It's cool. Like, if he's, especially if he's been their, like, minister for a long time. Like, just be like, hey, hey, bro. Like, hey, you you well, doing all right? I don't know why I keep calling the minister bra. I don't think I've ever called anyone bra, but, uh. Be like, hey, um, Mr. Hooper. Um, hey, Mr. Hooper. Wh what's up? You've got you've got this veil thing going on. You 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 working you, you working on your Norma Desmond? Yeah, it's like, are you experimenting in drag? Like, can we help? <laughs> How strange," said a lady, "that a simple black veil, such as any woman might wear on her bonnet, should become such a terrible thing on Mr. Hooper's face." See, they're just being gender assholes. <laughs> he feeling pretty today. La 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 la. la. Something must surely be amiss with Mr. Hooper's intellects, observed her husband, the physician of the village. But the strangest part of the affair is the effect of this vagary even on the sober-minded men like myself. The black veil, though it covers only the pastor's face, throws its influence over his whole person and makes him ghost-like from head to foot. Do you not feel it so? Truly, I do, replied the lady. <laughs> and I would not be alone with him for the world. I wonder he is not afraid to be alone with himself. Uh, again, go ask if everything's okay. Men sometimes are so, said her husband. The afternoon service was attended with similar circumstances. At its conclusion, the bell tolled for the funeral of a young lady. 
The relatives and friends were assembled in the house, and the more distant acquaintances stood about the door, speaking of the good qualities of the deceased, when their talk was interrupted by the appearance of Mr. Hooper, still covered with his black veil. It was now an appropriate emblem. The clergyman stepped into the room where the corpse was laid, and bent over the coffin to take a last farewell of his deceased parishioner. As he stooped, the veil hung straight down from his forehead, so that, if her eyelids had not been closed for ever, the dead maiden might have seen his face. Could Mr. Hooper be fearful of her glance, that he so hastily caught back the black veil? A person who watched the interview between the dead and living scrupled not to affirm that at the instant when the clergyman's features were disclosed, the corpse had slightly shuddered, rustling the shroud and muslin cap, though the countenance retained the composure of death. A superstitious old woman was the only witness of this prodigy. Um, so it didn't happen. <laughs> The woman's like, I swear the corpse shuddered. <laughs> um, sure, sure, Martha. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, Martha, how, uh, how many times do you go up to communion? I like the Jesus' blood. <laughs> it was really good this week. He's nom, good nom, nom. Must have aged just to perfection. Just just took about, uh, took about 1,800 years, but we've, we got the aging just right. It was great. Yummy. From the coffin, Mr. Hooper passed into the chamber of the mourners, and thence to the head of the staircase, to make the funeral prayer. It was a tender and heart-dissolving prayer, full of sorrow, yet so imbued with celestial hopes, that the music of a heavenly harp, swept by the fingers of the dead, seemed faintly to be heard amongst the saddest accents of the minister. The people trembled, though they but darkly understood him, when he prayed that they and himself and all of mortal race might be ready, as he trusted this young maiden had been, for the dreadful hour that should snatch the veil from their faces. The bearers went heavily forth, and the mourners followed, saddening all the street with the dead before them and Mr. Hooper, in his black veil behind. "'Why do you look back?' said one in the procession to his partner. "'I had a fancy,' replied she, "'that the minister and the maiden's spirit were walking hand in hand.' "'And so had I at the same moment,' said the other. "'That night the handsomest couple in Milford Village "'were to be joined in wedlock.' Though reckoned a melancholy man, Mr. Hooper had a placid cheerfulness for such occasions, which often excited a sympathetic smile where livelier merriment would have been thrown away. There was no quality of his disposition which made him more beloved than this. The company at the wedding awaited his arrival with impatience, trusting that the strange awe which had gathered over him throughout the day would now be dispelled. 
but such was not the result. Ooh, he's wearing black a black veil to a wedding? That's a little inappropriate. I'd, I'd be like, bro, this isn't my wedding. Like, what the fuck? Who possessed you? <laughs> huh? Because you just said bra again. I don't <laughs> What is going on? What does Nathaniel Hawthorne bring out in you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I've just decided since this, like, pastor's acting all fucking weird, I'm going to call him bra because I don't know what's going on with him. How's your sack game? My sack game? Happy sack. Oh. <laughs> it's like, what? When Mr. Hooper came, the first thing that their eyes rested on was the same horrible black veil which had added deeper gloom to the funeral and could portend nothing but evil to the wedding. Such was its immediate effect on the guests that a cloud seemed to have rolled duskily from beneath the black crepe and dimmed the light of the candles. The bridal pair stood up before the minister, but the bride's cold fingers quivered in the tremulous hand of the bridegroom, and her death-like paleness caused a whisper that the maiden who had been buried a few hours before was come from her grave to be married. Ah! If ever another wedding were so dismal, it was that famous one where they told the wedding knell. After performing the ceremony, Mr. Hooper raised a glass of wine to his lips, wishing happiness to the new married couple in a strain of mild pleasantry that ought to have brightened the features of the guests like a cheerful gleam from the hearth. At that instant, catching a glimpse of his figure in the looking-glass, the black veil involved his own spirit in the horror with which it overwhelmed all others. His frame shuddered, his lips grew white. He spilt the untasted wine upon the carpet and rushed forth into the darkness, for the earth, too, had on her black veil." What the? He, he finally saw himself in the mirror and was like, damn, oh, I'm terrifying. Jesus. I'm scary as shit. I can't believe I just performed at a wedding like this. Also, why I, have, have I been wearing this all day? Why didn't anyone say why anything? Why didn't you say anything? I, I knew it. I thought it was just cloudy. It's just cloudy day. The next day, the whole village of Milford talked of little else than Parson Hooper's black veil. That, and the mystery concealed behind it, supplied a topic for discussion between acquaintances meeting in the street and good women gossiping at their open windows. It was the first item of news that the tavern keeper told to his guests. The children babbled of it on their way to school. One imitative little imp covered his face with an old black handkerchief, thereby so affrighting his playmates that the panic seized himself, and he <laughs> well-nigh lost his wits by his own waggery. So he pissed his pants. Yeah, some some little some little kid put on a mask to scare his friends and, and instead scared, scared the shit out of himself. It was remarkable that of all the busybodies and impertinent people in the parish, not one ventured to put the plain question to Mr. Hooper wherefore he did this thing. Thank you! Hitherto, whenever there appeared the slightest call for such interference, he had never lacked advisers nor shown himself averse to be guided by their judgment. 
If he erred at all, it was by so painful a degree of self-distrust that even the mildest censure would lead him to consider an indifferent action as a crime. Yet, though so well acquainted with this amiable weakness, no individual among his parishioners chose to make the black veil a subject of friendly rem- remonstrance. Ooh, remonstrance. Rem- remonstrance? Remonstrance. Uh, a forceful, reproachful protest. Got it. Yet though so well acquainted... Yet, though so well acquainted with this amiable weakness, no individual among his parishioners chose to make the black veil the subject of friendly remonstrance. (laughs) There was a feeling of dread, neither plainly confessed nor carefully concealed, which caused each to shift the responsibility upon another, till at length it was found expedient to send a deputation of the church in order to deal with Mr. Hooper about the mystery before it should grow into a scandal. Call the sexton in! Never did an embassy so ill-discharge its duties. The minister received them with friendly courtesy, but became silent after they were seated, leaving to his visitors the whole burden of introducing their important business. The topic, it might be supposed, was (laughs) obvious enough. There was the black veil, swathed round Mr. Hooper's forehead and concealing every feature above his placid mouth on which, at times, they could perceive the glimmering of a melancholy smile. But that piece of crepe, to their imagination, seemed to hang down before his heart, the symbol of a fearful secret between him and them. Were the veil but cast aside, they might speak freely of it, but not till then. Thus they sat a considerable time, speechless, (laughs) confused, and shrinking uneasily from Mr. Hooper's eye, which they felt to be fixed upon them with an invisible glance. Finally, the deputies returned, abashed to their constituents, pronouncing the matter too weighty to be handled except by a council of the churches, if indeed it might not require a general synod. Oh my god, these bitch-ass dudes just, like, went to the church, sat in a circle. Like, I'm just imagining the most awkward, like, 30 minutes that could possibly be. This just feels like, like um, I, th- I, this feels like a, a scene from New Girl. Yes. Right, where, like, um, like so Jess has started feathering her bangs. Yep. And, and the boys Schmidt, had to sit Schmidt her- Winston, and Nick... <laughs> Call a loft meeting, and they all sit down, and then after, like, 45 seconds of silence, Nick stands up and says, so good talk, and they all leave. And they're like, bye, and he moonwalks out. And he he awkward (laughs) moonwalk. (laughs) But there was one person in the village, unappalled by the awe with which the black veil had impressed all besides herself. 
When the deputies returned without an explanation or even venturing to demand one, she, with a calm energy of her character, determined to chase away the strange cloud that appeared to be settling around Mr. Hooper every moment more darkly than before. As his plighted wife, it should be her privilege to know what the black veil concealed. Wait, he's married? Apparently. Or no, plighted. Like, to be? Wife to be? He's, no. They said he's a bachelor at the beginning. Yep, to be engaged. Oh. Plighted. Pledge or promise. Huh. Yeah. So, he's it's his, it's his uh, fiance. It's his fiance. As his plighted wife, it should be her privilege to know what the black veil concealed. At the minister's first visit, therefore, she entered upon the subject with a direct simplicity, which made the task easier both for him and her. Yeah, I would, if you were wearing a thing around, if you just, the second you came downstairs, I'd be like... The fuck are you wearing? Well, I'd let you do it for a few minutes, because I'd be like, maybe, I don't know what's going on. But then, like, if it continued, I'd be like, hey, sweetie... What what the what the heck's going on there? Oh, I get I get sweetie, not bra. Yeah, you're not you're not my bra. Okay. <laughs> I actually had to consciously not say bra. <laughs> hey, sweetie. Qu'est-ce que la fuck? <laughs> After he had seated himself, she fixed her eyes steadfastly upon the veil, but could discern nothing from the dreadful gloom that had so overawed the multitude. It was but a double fold of crepe hanging down from his forehead to his mouth and slightly stirring with his breath. No, said she aloud and smiling. There is nothing terrible in this piece of crepe except that it hides a face which I am always glad to look upon. Come, good sir, let the sun shine from behind the cloud. First lay aside your black veil, then tell me why you put it on. And then kiss my face, because I miss it. Mr. Hooper's smile glimmered faintly. Aww. There is an hour to come, said he, when all of us shall cast aside our veils. Take it not amiss, beloved friend, if I wear this piece of crepe till then. Your words are a mystery, too, returned the young lady. Take away the veil from them, at least. Elizabeth, I will, said he. So far as my vow may suffer me. No, then, this veil is a type and a symbol, and I am bound to wear it ever, both in light and darkness, in solitude and before the gaze of multitudes, and as with strangers, so with my familiar friends. No mortal eye will see it withdrawn. This dismal shade must separate me from the world. Even you, Elizabeth, can never come behind it. What? What grievous affliction hath befallen you, she earnestly inquired, that you should thus darken your eyes forever? If it be a sign of mourning, replied Mr. Hooper, I, perhaps, like most other mortals, have sorrows dark enough to be typified by a black veil. But what if the world will not believe that it is the type of an innocent sorrow, urged Elizabeth? 
beloved and respected as you are, there may be whispers that you hide your face under the consciousness of secret sin. For the sake of your holy office, do away with this scandal. The color rose in her cheeks as she intimated the nature of the rumors that were already abroad in the village, but Mr. Hooper's mildness did not forsake him. He even smiled again, that same sad smile which always appeared like a faint glimmering of light proceeding from the obscurity beneath the veil. "'If I hide my face for sorrow, there is cause enough.' he merely replied, and if I cover it for secret sin, what mortal might not do the same? And with this gentle but unconquerable obstinacy did he resist all her entreaties. At length Elizabeth sat silent. For a few moments she appeared lost in thought, considering probably what new methods might be tried to withdraw her lover from <laughs> okay, new so dark a fantasy, which, if Maybe. it had no other meaning, was perhaps a symptom of mental disease. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> they like, he damn lost it. <laughs> Maybe you should play with his bill rope. Try his tugging lustfully on his yeah, bell rope could, and see if, if that does anything. If you could lustfully tug on his bell rope or his, you know, whatever. <laughs> his, his, his. Though of a firmer bells. character than his own, the tears rolled down her cheeks. But in an instant, as it were, a new feeling took the place of sorrow. Her eyes were fixed insensibly on the black veil when like a sudden twilight in the air its tremors fell around her she arose and stood trembling before him and do you feel it then at last he said mournfully she made no reply but covered her eyes with her hand and turned to leave the room he rushed forward and caught her arm have patience with me elizabeth cried he passionately do not desert me though this veil must be between us here on earth be mine and hereafter there shall be no veil over my face no darkness between our souls it is but a mortal veil it is not for eternity oh you know not how lonely i am and how frightened to be alone behind my black veil do not leave me in this miserable obscurity forever. Lift the veil but once, and look me in the face, said she. Never. It cannot be, replied Mr. Hooper. <laughs> then farewell, yeah. said Elizabeth. <laughs> I'd be like, bye. <laughs> she withdrew her arm from his grasp and slowly departed, pausing at the door to give one long shuddering gaze that seemed almost to penetrate the mystery of the black veil. But even amid his grief, Mr. Hooper smiled to think that only a material emblem had separated him from happiness, though the horrors which it shadowed forth must be drawn darkly between the fondest of lovers. From that time, no attempts were made to remove Mr. Hooper's black veil, or by a direct appeal to discover the secret which it was supposed to hide by persons who claimed a superiority to popular prejudice it was reckoned merely an eccentric whim 
such as often mingles with the sober actions of men otherwise rational and tinges them all with its own semblance of insanity. <laughs> he just went a little crazy. It's fine. But with the multitude, good Mr. Hooper was irreparably a bugbear. He could not walk the street with any peace of mind, so conscious was he that the gentle and timid would turn aside to avoid him, and that others would make it a point of hardihood to throw themselves in his way. The impertinence of the latter class compelled him to give up his customary walk at sunset to the burial ground, for when he leaned pensively over the gate, there would always be faces behind the gravestones peeping at his black veil. A fable went the rounds that the stare of the dead people drove him thence. It grieved him to the very depth of his heart to observe how the children fled from his approach, breaking up their merriest sports while his melancholy figure was yet afar off. Their instinctive dread caused him to feel more strongly than aught else that a preternatural horror was interwoven with the threads of the black crepe. In truth, his own antipathy to the veil was known to be so great that he never willingly passed before a mirror, nor stooped to drink at a still fountain, lest in its peaceful bosom he should be affrighted by himself. Wow. This was what gave plausibility to the whispers that Mr. Hooper's conscience tortured him for some great crime too horrible to be entirely concealed or otherwise than so obscurely intimated. Thus, from beneath the black veil, there rolled a cloud into the sunshine, an ambiguity of sin or sorrow which enveloped the poor minister so that love or sympathy could never reach him. It was said that ghost and fiend consorted with him there. With self-shudderings and outward terrors, he walked continually in its shadow, groping darkly within his own soul or gazing through a medium that saddened the whole world. Even the lawless wind, it was believed, respected his dreadful secret and never blew aside the veil. But still, good Mr. Hooper sadly smiled at the pale visages of the worldly throng as he passed by. Wow, um, he needs a hug. <laughs> Among all its bad influences, the Black Veil had the one desirable effect of making its wearer a very efficient clergyman. <laughs> By the aid of his mysterious emblem, for there was no other apparent cause, he became a man of awful power over souls that were in agony for sin. His converts always regarded him with a dread peculiar to themselves, affirming, though but figuratively, that before he brought them to celestial light, they had been with him behind the black veil. Yeah, he's like the it's, fucking Grim Reaper. He's like, he's a preacher is dressed like the Grim Reaper. I would listen to him as well. preachers should wear costumes. Oh, absolutely. They should like be like dressed like demons and shit. Or I'd, I'd listen. like 
if the Easter sermon was given by a preacher in a bunny costume, <laughs> that'd be adorable. That'd be cute. Or a giant like dancing Easter egg. Or like Jesus with a rock on his shoulder. Like <laughs> I, I was thinking I was thinking more entertaining. Like adorable like, costumes. Yeah. Like they dress up in mascot costumes or like preachers that dress up as actual bugbears from D and D. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dying sinners cried aloud for Mr. Hooper and would not yield their breath till he appeared, though ever, as he stooped to whisper consolation, they shuddered at the veiled face so near their own. Such were the terrors of the black veil, even when death had bared his visage. Strangers came long distances to attend service at his church with the mere idle purpose of gazing at his figure because it was forbidden them to behold his face. Everyone wants the uh, forbidden fruit, man. Yup. But many were made to quake ere they departed. Once during Governor Belcher's administration, Mr. Hooper was appointed to preach the election sermon. Covered with his black veil, he stood before the chief magistrate, the council, and the representatives, and wrought so deep an impression that the legislative measures of the year were characterized by all the gloom and piety of our earliest ancestral sway. Oh, God. This guy's like the doom and gloom preacher now. Like, yeah. I mean, he really is just, he he's just like the fire and brimstone. <laughs> In this manner... Mr. Hooper spent a long life, irreproachable in outward act, yet shrouded in dismal suspicions, kind and loving, though unloved and dimly feared, a man apart from men, shunned in their health and joy, but ever summoned to their aid in mortal anguish. As years wore on, shedding their snows above his sable veil, he acquired a name throughout the New England churches, and they called him Father Hooper. So he's Catholic now. <laughs> Nearly all his parishioners who were of a mature age when he was settled had been borne away by many a funeral. He had one congregation in the church and a more crowded one in the churchyard, and having wrought so late into the evening and done his work so well, it was now good Father Hooper's turn to rest. Several persons were visible. Wait, you can see his face? Oh my God, go, go, go. Several persons were visible by the shaded candlelight in the death chamber of the old clergyman. Natural connections had he none. But there was the decorously grave, though unmoved physician, seeking only to mitigate the last pangs of the patient whom he could not save. There were the deacons and other eminently pious members of his church. There also was the Reverend Mr. Clark of Westbury, a young and zealous divine who had ridden in haste to pray by the bedside of the expiring minister. There was the nurse, no hired handmaid of death, but one whose calm affection had endured thus long in secrecy, in solitude, amid the chill of age, and would not perish even at the dying hour. 
who but Elizabeth. I was going to say, is Elizabeth now the nurse? And there lay the hoary head of good father Hooper. Rude, upon... don't call him a whore. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> also explicitly inaccurate. <laughs> and there lay the hoary head of good father Hooper upon the death pillow, with the black veil still swathed about his brow and reaching down over his face so that each more difficult gasp of his faint breath caused it to stir. All through life, that piece of crepe had hung between him and the world. It had separated him from cheerful brotherhood and woman's love and kept him in that saddest of all prisons in his own heart. And still it lay upon his face as if to deepen the gloom of his darksome chamber and shade him from the sunshine of eternity. For some time previous, his mind had been confused, wavering doubtfully between the past and the present, and hovering forward, as it were, at intervals into the indistinctness of the world to come. There had been feverish turns which tossed him from side to side and wore away what little strength he had. But in his most convulsive struggles, and in the wildest vagaries of his intellect, when no other thought retained its sober influence, he still showed an awful solicitude lest the black veil should slip aside. Even if his bewildered soul could have forgotten, there was a faithful woman at his pillow, who with averted eyes would have covered that aged face which she had last beheld in the comeliness of manhood. <laughs> At length, the death-stricken old man lay quietly in the torpor of mental and bodily exhaustion with an imperceptible pulse and breath that grew fainter and fainter except when a long, deep, and irregular inspiration seemed to prelude the flight of his spirit. The minister of Westbury approached the bedside. Venerable Father Hooper, said he, the moment of your release is at hand. Are you ready for the lifting of the veil that shuts in time from eternity? Father Hooper at first replied merely by a feeble motion of his head. Then, apprehensive, perhaps, that his meaning might be doubtful, he exerted himself to speak. Yea, said he, in faint accents, my soul hath a patient weariness until that veil be lifted. And is it fitting, resumed the Reverend Mr. Clark, that a man so given to prayer of such blameless example, holy in deed and thought, so far as mortal judgment may pronounce, is it fitting that a father in the church should leave a shadow on his memory that may seem to blacken a life so pure? I pray you, my venerable brother, let not this thing be, suffer us to be gladdened by your triumphant aspect as you go to your reward. Before the veil of eternity be lifted, let me cast aside this black veil from your face. And thus speaking, the Reverend Mr. Clark bent forward to reveal the mystery of so many years. Skeletor! <laughs> But, 
exerting a sudden energy that made all the beholders stand aghast, Father Hooper snatched both his hands from beneath the bedclothes and pressed them strongly on the black veil, resolute to struggle if Minister Westbury would contend with a dying man. Oh, shit. Never, cried the veiled clergyman. On earth, never. He just said do it. Dark old man, exclaimed the affrighted minister. With what horrible crime upon your soul are you now passing to the judgment? Father Hooper's breath heaved. It rattled in his throat. But with a mighty effort, grasping forward with his hands, he caught hold of life and held it back till he should speak. He even raised himself in bed. And there he sat, shivering with the arms of death around him, with a black veil hung down, awful at that last moment in the gathered terrors of a lifetime. And yet the faint, sad smile, so often there now, seemed to glimmer from its obscurity and linger on Father Hooper's lips. "'Why do you tremble at me alone?' cried he, turning his veiled face round the circle of pale spectators. Tremble also at each other. Have men avoided me, and women shown no pity, and children screamed and fled only for my black veil? What but the mystery which it obscurely typifies has made this piece of crepe so awful? When the friend shows his inmost heart to his friend, the lover to his best beloved, when man does not vainly shrink from the eye of the Creator, loathsomely treasuring up the secret of his sin, then deem me a monster for the symbol beneath which I have lived and died. I look around me, and lo, on every visage, a black veil." While his auditors shrank from one another in mutual affright, Father Hooper fell back upon his pillow, a veiled corpse with a faint smile lingering on the lips. Still veiled, they laid him in his coffin, and a veiled corpse they bore him to the grave. The grass of many years has sprung up and withered on that grave. The burial stone is moss-grown and good Mr. Hooper's face is dust. But awful is still the thought that it moldered beneath the black veil. Ew! <laughs> Ew, what the fuck? <laughs> Why? Why if, what? If, if everyone has a metaphorical black veil, why do you have to have a literal one? So, I will read you something I found while I was doing fun facts. Okay. So, Hawthorne may have been inspired by a true event. A clergyman named Joseph Moody of York, Maine, who is nicknamed Handkerchief Moody, <laughs> accidentally killed a friend when he was a young man. So, like, like uh -huh. it wasn't a car crash because right. it was before cars, but like something happened. Some sort of accident. Um, and wore a black veil from the man's funeral until his own death. Huh. So there's, like, thoughts that it was inspired by that so that Mr. Hooper in this was, like, 
guilty over something and like the black veil was a like literal symbol of that guilt that like weight right but although the metaphor yeah seems to be one or the the point of the whole thing seems to be one of I started wearing this thing and everyone became afraid of mm-hmm. me for whatever mystery or secret sin it might be hiding but don't Everybody you realize yeah. that the only like I'm just being honest about it my veil is literal but everyone is hiding their secret sin this mm-hmm. way and does that make I guess I'm like well yeah because everyone has secrets everyone has like their own like guilt or their own you know issues with things and like past but why why did this preacher feel like that was that he needed to put on a veil and like show that to the world because everyone should be afraid of everybody else or or don't be afraid of other people because of their past and their, yeah, their or, or or just like why be afraid of the person who is admitting that they have something to be ashamed yeah. of when it's yeah. uh, when when everyone probably has something yeah and the people who don't admit it are, the are probably probably working the hardest to hide it well and they're the scariest huh that interesting, was good. interesting story. It yeah. did not lead to the the most rollicking laugh riot of commentary, no. and, but it was it was well written story. Well written story and a lot of like dick and ball jokes. So that, <laughs> you know it feels about right. So that feels feels sort of on par. Um, hey, listener, what did you think of that one? Mostly asking because I'm curious how you felt about this sort of. I, I feel like the whole read despite some penis interjections, had a slightly more somber tone. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious how you felt about that. Did you enjoy it more? Did you enjoy it less? Yeah, Were you surprised? Give us some feedback on this one because uh, it it had a very different feel to me while I was reading it. Yeah. And I'd love to know how uh, how it felt to you because we're just, we're always trying to get a little better. And yeah. uh, uh, feedback is the best way that we can improve. We love feedback. So find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email us, uh, go to our website at campfireclassics.com, campfireclassicspodcast.com, and send us a message. We'll get it, and we will respond. It's also very important. We don't uh, we don't go around paying for advertising. No, our advertising comes from other podcasts who are kind enough to to do promotional swaps with us, yep. and from our listeners who say, "Hey, I think this is really cool. You should give it a listen." Yeah. So if you've listened to this or any other episodes and found yourself thinking, hey, that was a fun way to spend an hour and 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was, know. let us know. But Almost more importantly, let like five other people know. Yeah, let five friends know. Um, that's how the these things grow. Because the best way to advertise is through a pyramid scheme. So, <laughs> listener, you go free. tell you go tell five friends, and if they listen, then each of those five friends has to tell five more friends, and then they tell five more. Yeah. And pretty soon, everyone on Earth will be listening to Campfire Classics. I mean, yeah, that should be happening but, within the next couple months. But you want to get in on the ground floor. <laughs> we something. are a pyramid scheme. Enjoy. <laughs> Welcome to Campfire Classics, a literary pyramid scheme. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's a good place to stop. I think yeah. that's that's, that's yeah. a good. Do we have any other old business that we need to hit? Um, Twitter, Facebook. No, do thank the you thing. for listening. Uh, if-
if you're still listening at the end, uh, message us Pyramid Scheme or, you know, tell us uh, something that you liked or didn't like yeah. and tell your friends. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks for hanging in there. Until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Dun, dun, dun.